Have you ever been to one of those, those concerts or the, those rallies uh, where there's a whole crowd of people, there's some guy on stage or some person, woman, guy, doesn't matter, and they're speaking about something which has the whole crowd inflamed. They're excited about it. They're chanting, they're clapping, they're yelling out, they're screaming. Uh, it wouldn't ever happen in church, of course, but um, why not, I say. But you're sitting there with your arms folded and you're thinking, these guys are loonies. I just can't get into this. I don't understand what he's talking about. I can't see why everybody is so excited. I just feel on the outer. And I don't know about you, but when people talk about being excited about reading the Bible, sometimes I'm that guy. I'm thinking, yeah, I've looked at it. I've read bits of it. Some of it's pretty hard to do. And I do it out of duty and I do it out of a realisation that there's really good stuff in there. But sometimes I find it hard to get excited. There's Anybody else ever felt like that? Because, okay, good, I'm talking to the right crowd. And so I actually want us to, to, to take a step back from the hype and, and the idea that, you know, we should just get excited because Chris is up the front getting excited about it. And so, whoa, it, there's got to be something good. That's true. I don't get excited unless there's really something good to be excited about. Just ask my wife. I'm, I'm not the most uh, expressive person on the planet, but there's something I think that we're missing if we actually cannot grab hold of the enthusiasm that we need to read the Bible and to read it properly. And so last week I talked about the, the hyperlinks in, in the Gospels and how we can actually read it like a Wikipedia page, not just a, a novel, that we can read from page to page, but another perhaps more satisfying way of reading the Bible, especially if you're a mature Christian, is to actually look at the, the links in there and actually go to different places of the Bible and see how the scriptures are linked up. And so I want to continue with that theme on how the Bible actually can become an exciting gateway to discovering more about Jesus than we ever thought we could possibly know. And one warning with this, it's good to be, I mean, Next 20 minutes is going to be exciting for me. Hopefully it'll be exciting for you. Uh, but this stuff takes a lifetime. You're not going to go away and, then, and another 20 minutes sometime during the week grasp everything that I talk about today. It's going to take you a lifetime. Is anybody prepared to take the rest of their life following Jesus and discovering about the kingdom of God and his word? Because that's what it's about. I've called my... Um, message this morning, tying the testaments together, tying the testaments together, four gospels. <laughs> Apparently last week the fact that I can't count was actually discussed more at dinner party than any of the important stuff that I preached. <laughs> and so whatever holds your attention, I'm going to keep doing. But each, each gospel, and I, I hope you did your homework this week, um, Bart was very relieved when I told him that I'd actually said to only read the first chapter of each gospel and not all four gospels in the week. Um, I hope nobody else uh, got that one wrong. <laughs> um, but each gospel has a different beginning because each author wants to take you on a different journey. It's a journey to understand that Jesus is the climax of the Hebrew scriptures. These, the gospels are constantly from the first moment tying the Jesus story back to the Hebrew scriptures. And there's not a story, not a parable of Jesus, not a teaching of Jesus that isn't packed with Old Testament allusion. 
So today, what I hope to do is break down that wall that often exists in our mind between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Gospels, and see how really they're all telling the same story pointing to Jesus. So let's start with Mark. You're all thinking, why don't we start with Matthew? He's the first one. But actually Mark, according to the scholars who know about these things, is actually the earliest chronologically account of the gospel. And that Matthew and Luke actually use some of Mark as a source. And uh, it's also fairly certain that John was the laziest and he wrote his last. So um, actually I'm not sure laziness had anything to do with it. And so, so if we look at the first chapter, the first verse of Mark, it begins... The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, here he goes. Mark is starting a story about Jesus. And in the first sentence, he gets sidetracked and starts talking about Isaiah. So he doesn't even get into the story. And he's connecting Jesus to the prophets straight away. And he says he's quoting from Isaiah. But to a first century Christian reading this, the first thing they'd have hooked up was, hey, hang on, he's not reading Isaiah. This is Malachi, blended with Isaiah. And you say, you sort of think, well, you know, was Mark a bit of a duffer? You know, he got his scriptures mixed up. He said Isaiah, but he's written down uh, Malachi, and he's mixed it a bit with Isaiah, so he's probably not a very good reader of Scripture. And it would be very tempting for us, I think, to think that way. But if you look at it carefully, what's he done? He's quoted a Scripture from the first book of the Prophets, and he's quoted a Scripture from the last book of the Prophets. So what he's actually trying to tell us is that Jesus is important, and his story goes from Isaiah to Malachi in the book of the Prophets, and you need to go and read the book of the Prophets before you go any further. You think, oh... Here we are in the first sentence already he's got me reading however many books of the prophets there are in the Old Testament. How am I ever going to get to the end? And I think that's the problem with us. Most of us read the, the Bible with the, with the aim of getting to the end so that we can sit back and say, ah, I've read it. I am a good Christian. I have read the Bible. I'm going to heaven now. Lord, you can take me. That's not how we should be reading the Bible. And so the interesting thing is that Before Mark ever came along, if you are a reader of the Hebrew Scriptures, these two passages are already hyperlinked. They're already linked in the the authorship of the Old Testament. The the people who put together the the books of the prophets already had this idea that you should actually look at Isaiah 40 and Malachi 4 and recognise that they say the same thing. And so Mark is actually quite a a good uh, reader of the Bible. He's quite au fait with what the, the writers of the, the books of the prophets are trying to do. And so he's actually put a blended quotation in there because he's trying, to, he's trying to tell us a story without having to spell it out. And so what he's done here, this prologue from the prophets, he said, there's a herald, and where's the herald? In the wilderness. And who's he preparing the way for? Yahweh. And then he starts his narrative. And he says, verse 4, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Who's the herald? John the Baptist. So he's hit you with this this picture of what the Old Testament is predicting, and suddenly the characters have appeared. Oh, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance, 
for the forgiveness of sins. And so he's preparing the way for Yahweh. Verse 9, at that time, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee came, or came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the, Gord- in the Gordon, <laughs> in the Jordan. <laughs> um, different river, that's the Scottish version. <laughs> um, and so, okay, so you've got your herald, he baptised, who's he waiting for? Yahweh. Who turns up? Jesus. Who's Jesus? Yahweh. Now can you see in two sentences, he has encompassed the whole book of the prophets and shown that his first century readers that here, this isn't some isolated incident that's happening here. This has been foreseen and there's a herald and there's Yahweh and these are the two people who represent them, John the Baptist and Jesus. And we think, well, yeah, sure, that's because that's, that's what the Gospels are all about. But the people who are reading this in the first century, this is, this is all good news, but news, news, new news. And so what he's set up is with clues from the Old Testament, he's going to reveal in his narrative the characters who fit the Herald category and the Yahweh category, and he leads the, the reader into this big reveal uh, through Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. And so because the Jewish readers are anticipating Yahweh, Mark leads them straight to Jesus without actually having to spell it out. So isn't that clear? It's clear if you know what you're looking for. And the trouble is that Mark assumes if you're reading his book, you've been taught how to read the Bible. Good luck with that in the 21st century, I say. But in the first century, he was probably fairly on the money. And at least you've got to to think Mark is blatant with his quotation of Scripture. He did say that he was quoting from Isaiah. He might have fudged it a bit. But he's, he's being straight up with his connection to the Old Testament. So let's turn to Matthew. Are we excited yet? Oh. Matthew takes things slightly differently. And you sort of, you've got to ask, why did they put Matthew first in the Bible? I mean, why start the New Testament with a genealogy? Now, just a word there. The word is actually pronounced genealogy. If you look at it, that's how it's spelt. But nobody ever pronounces it like that. And people look at you weird if you do. So I'm going to say genealogy the same as everyone else. Okay? <laughs> right. I'm not going to be difficult this morning. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. And if we, uh, what follows for the first half of the chapter is this genealogy, which can be perceived as boring, uh, and many people are tempted to skip over it. Uh, but Matthew if you're looking closely, has actually given us a clue as to what he's up to in the first line. Because who's he linking Jesus to? David and Abraham. And if we look at the genealogy, we see that Matthew has divided it into three sections of 14 generations. I don't know whether you've been bothered to count those, but you can take my word for it. Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian exile, and the exile to the Messiah, or Jesus. And the last point is actually significant because if you've read your Old Testament, you'll realise that a bunch of people came back to Jerusalem after the exile, if you've read any of Ezra or Nehemiah. Um, And you sort of think, well, isn't the exile over? But if you have done what Mark has asked you to do in the previous gospel and gone back and read the book of the prophets, you'll see that in the eyes of the prophets, the restoration from exile isn't going to happen until they become the new covenant people who are God's witnesses to the nation. And so Jesus is actually the messianic response to the exile. 
But this genealogy raises a number of questions. It's included elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures, so why did Matthew put it in? Especially, as point number two in is, he's missed generations. There's people missing in this. And because his audience is first century Jews, they're going to pick this just like that. It's like, hang on, there's a few people missing here. Why did he turn it into three lots of 14 generations? And the other thing, which is really strange, why include four mothers? Because if you, if you read it in brackets, there are four women mentioned in this genealogy. Now, there's a couple of different thoughts here, because Matthew gets a bit deep here. The 14 is, of course, 7 times 2. 7 is the number for God and the number of completion. So he's, he, he's doing that to link Jesus with God himself. Uh, 14 is also the numerical value of the name David, uh, if you're into numerology. Uh, and Matthew is actually drawing attention to the idea that Jesus is a new David in response to the exile. And so Matthew's sort of got a bit deeper. This isn't surface stuff that we, we get just by reading. Oh, look at the number of... Because in Hebrew, the name David is only three letters. Oh, I got that one right. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, the, these aren't obvious things. And the, the other great thing is that he's highlighted four women in the genealogy. He's missed generations of men, but then he's named four mothers. What do they all have in common? Well, for a start, they're all non-Israelites. All of them except Rahab was recently widowed. They all have slightly suspicious nighttime meetings with Israelite leaders. And they all make bold requests of said leader. And most of them at some point confess Yahweh, the God of Israel, as their God as well. So he's highlighting these Gentile women in Jesus' genealogy, which is actually really unexpected. But again, all of these stories are hyperlinked within the Hebrew Bible itself, within the Old Testament. So people have already noticed that these four women actually have a key part to play. And it's developing this, messianic, this theme of Yahweh, rescuing the messianic seed through the surprising woman figure. It's a subtle theme where these women keep saving stupid Israelite men, but in surprising ways. Um, because, I mean, Eve becomes the first deceived and then Adam is deceived through her deception. And people have majored on that story for centuries, uh, much to the detriment of women as a whole. But Matthew pulls out these surprising stories where not just men, but the whole messianic line is rescued by the woman. So I can see at least 50% of the population is going to start doing an in-depth Bible study because I think that's a, Matthew is making a really important point here which I think a lot of people have missed. That, uh, you know, don't focus on Adam and Eve because that's, that was just the first. There are plenty of stories where husbands and wives in the Bible are let down by the husband or by the wife. But there are these stories here where four non-Israelite women actually rescue the seed of David from the stupidity of male Israelite leaders. So this, this genealogy is actually packed with awesome uh, Hebrew Bible um, goodness. You're not supposed to skip over the genealogy, you're supposed to meditate on it. You know, think, why are the three sections? Why 14 generations and why are these women in here? And, so, and also recognise that genealogies, of course, are the 
Biblical authors' favourite vehicles for showing the continuity of God's promise through the generations. Uh, and so they build a lot of numerical symbolism and word plays into them. And so Matthew is effectively saying to check out the people in the genealogy because you'll find that they too all point towards Jesus just as I am about to in my gospel account. This is Matthew speaking, not me. Uh, although it's very close, just chop off the last letter. Um, and so he, he's basically warning people, you know, this, this is the way I'm going to do things, so look out because my gospel is going to be full of this stuff. So Matthew's a, a bit more in depth. Funnily enough, Mark does tend to be the most popular of the Gospels. Um, but let's move on to Mook. Mook? Luke. I keep getting close, don't I? It's only one letter away. Luke is the only one of the four Gospels that begins with a little prologue from the author addressing the reader about how the Gospel was created. Luke 1.1 says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So first of all, he's acknowledging that there are other accounts of Jesus out there passed down from eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That's an odd term to use, but they were actually people whose job it was to memorise the, the accounts of Jesus and go around as apostles and teachers uh, telling people about this Jesus tradition. And secondly, he says, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, he's, to, he's there to write an orderly account for Theophilus. Thanks for sponsoring my research, by the way. And so he's actually written a... a a dedication, if you like, at the top to this guy, Theophilus. Who, and we don't know who Theophilus was, except that he was obviously part of the uh, uh, Jesus community. He'd heard the servants of the word. He'd probably even met an eyewitness or two. Um, but he's commissioned a new account, probably because the olive uh, crop was really good that year. And so he had a bit of spare cash. So he thought, well, I've met this Luke guy. I know he's sharp. He's a physician. And he went with that other guy. What's his name? Paul. He even got shipwrecked with him. So this guy knows stuff. So I'm going to offer him... Uh, a cash incentive to write me a true uh, adaptation of what Jesus actually did. And so Luke says, sure, I'm in. And so he writes his gospel and the book of Acts. I mean, once he started, he couldn't stop. Um, and so he's dedicated this. And so how does Luke begin? Well, Luke's, Luke's into storytelling. Luke wants to make you work for this, but he, he doesn't want to be too hard on you. And so he starts with this engaging story. In verse 5, he says, When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron, or Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Right off the bat, you have to ask yourself, who does this remind you of? I mean, who doesn't it remind you of? He has put together this story of John the Baptist's parents, because that's who they are, or going to be, and you've got to think, hang on, I've heard some of this stuff before. You've got a priest named Zechariah who's a Levite. Levites all come from the lineage of Aaron, and he's married a wife 
who's also from the lineage of Aaron. Bible trivia question. What was the name of Aaron's wife? Elizabeth. <laughs> and so here we have, um, you know, this connection to this priestly line of Aaron, uh, married to a Levite daughter who's named after the matriarch of the whole line. They're righteous and blameless, which echoes both Noah in uh, Genesis 6 and, of course, Abraham in Genesis 17. They're really old and have no children. Sounds a bit like Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? And so Luke is portraying this couple who are going to become John the Baptist's parents as a priestly Abraham and Sarah. So then the idea is that we think, okay, well, let's, let's check back on this story of Abraham and Sarah and see what happens there and whether this actually has any linkage to that. And so he tells this beautiful story about Zechariah, an angel appears to him and he's offering incense. And he says, you're going to have a kid. And he doesn't believe it, just like Abraham doesn't. And it's interesting in, in verse 18 in Luke 1, Zechariah says to the angel, Basically, I'm an old man. And Gabriel replies, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> and I win because you're going to be mute now until the baby's born. So suck on that. And so there's this, the, this um, spitting competition that goes on between Zech, I'm an old man. And he says, well, I'm Gabriel, so I win. Um, and anyway, Elizabeth gets pregnant. So this is the herald, the angel tells Zechariah. He's going to be an Elijah who prepares the way of the Lord. And so Luke is overlapping here on, on Mark's theme. So God redoes the Abraham and Sarah thing to raise up a miraculous child, but the miraculous child is just the setup for the one who's coming after him. So guess who does another visit? Gabriel. He turns up and he visits Mary. And the interesting thing is, yeah, Mary's you know 15 year old girl, um, just about to get married to Joseph. Um, and uh, he, which, who's also a descendant of King David, by the way. And as we read on, we discover that her response is the exact opposite of Zechariah's. And this is all about how God is bringing down the high and exalted and lifting up the humble and the hungry. And the narrative contrast between Zechariah and Mary itself is actually doing just that. The high priest is being brought down and the lowly no-name girl is being exalted as the mother of the Messiah. And this becomes a massive theme throughout all of Luke. The theme of the upside down or the inverted kingdom. So there you go, when you're reading Luke, look for the idea that Luke is always t talking about how the coming of Jesus upended our, our ideas of how society should work. So finally, got to get moving here. Finally, John. John, John doesn't muck around. He comes out of the gate swinging. He says, what, what's his first, first word? In the beginning. You sort of think, hang on, I've heard this. <laughs> I, know, I know where he's going with this. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So it's fairly fairly obvious here that we're meant to be thinking, hmm, in the beginning, in the beginning, I that. I've seen that somewhere. And so we're supposed to have already sort of uploaded in our Bible Genesis 1 so that we can actually go back and refer to it. And that's, that's actually supposed, that's fairly, fairly obvious, wouldn't you say? 
fact, blindingly obvious. What's not quite so obvious is mixed in with what I just read you is uh, are verses or, or sections from Proverbs 8. Who, who read Proverbs 8 last week? No, because I didn't tell you to. Um, but and Proverbs 8, if you've ever read it, is actually about this mysterious figure called Lady Wisdom. You thought, what? How, does, how does this Lady Wisdom enter into the picture? Well, it's actually, uh, Proverbs 8 is a meditation on Genesis 1, strangely enough. But it's actually portrayed through this Lady Wisdom, who actually appears throughout a lot of the Proverbs. And if we look in Genesis 1, because Proverbs 8 is all about the complex character of God. And there was some months back, I think I, I preached on the whole idea of how God's character um, and his character traits actually turn into people. Um, if we look at Genesis 1, Elohim was creating in the first line of Genesis. Then God's personal presence hovered over the waters. And instead of being Elohim, the word is Ruach, or the spirit of Elohim. And the, the means by which God actually created things was by the word of God. And so we've got all these characteristics of God, and the word of God and the spirit of God actually become different characters in the Bible. And the lady wisdom is another character. She's the wisdom of God. And it's been characterised as this, as this woman. And, and if you read uh, Proverbs, Lady Wisdom talks about how I was there with God before the beginning and how through wisdom he created the earth. Now, wisdom isn't the word used in Genesis, but we can see there's an underlying... I mean, God was obviously knowing what he was doing when he created the earth. People, I'm not so sure. Um, anyway, that's not in my notes. So ignore that. So the significant thing here is that the figure of Lady Wisdom, who's an attribute of God and yet separate from God, gives the apostles the category to start talking about the identity of Jesus. And so when John talks about God's word was both God and with God beside him, he's using that same sort of category. And so to a first century reader, the, the use of Lady Wisdom creates a mental space in the, in the Jewish mind um, of the complex portrait of God and that God's attributes are both God and distinct from God. And so John actually is essentially claiming that Jesus is a, in a Lady Wisdom-like category. He's one who pre-existed creation and was God and distinct from God from the time before creation. And so he's appealing to a very Jewish audience here to get them to actually lift Jesus into that space that gives him the divinity and the connection with God that actually predates even Genesis. So John's being extremely clever here. Um, and so in the opening lines of John, it links the pre-incarnate Jesus to Genesis 1, also links Jesus separately to Proverbs 8, and he links them together all at the same time. Is your head spinning? Mine was. Uh, so we notice that John is perhaps a little different to Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, with Matthew, Mark and Luke, you get a sense of the historical drama leading up to the moment where the God of Israel arrives. John basically just gets way back into prehistory because for John, it's all about the identity of Jesus. Now, if you're anything like me, you're thinking, how the heck am I meant to work any of this stuff out on my own? I mean, I, I, I struggle just to understand some of the language in the Bible. Um, it seems really difficult. How am I supposed to get that sort of level of meaning 
from reading my Bible. And we've only looked at the first page of each of the Gospels. And they are all full of this stuff. And so I want to, I want to encourage you. That I think there are three keys. <laughs> the first is to realise that it will take a lifetime. What we actually have to do is commit ourselves to going on the journey. We don't have to know all of this stuff. We just have to have the desire to discover it. Because you know how we're often told that God hides things not to hide them from us, but hides them for us to discover. Because as we, as we discover them, as we mature in them, it actually changes our life. And, and this is, some of this stuff is because it helps broaden us from the, the Pentecostal view that the gospel is just the message of salvation to a wider view that actually that the gospels talk about that the, the good news is actually the coming of the kingdom of God, which is a much bigger thing. And if we can expand our thinking even, even to that, it can actually change our lives. So realise it'll take a lifetime. You don't have to know this stuff tomorrow. We just have to start the journey. Number two, use the hyperlinks. Don't read your Bible with the, the idea that it's a race to see if you can get to the end. Because if you get to the end, you'll only have to start again at the beginning. So let, let's, let's use the Bible to actually blow our minds, expand our thinking. That's why, I mean, you might notice this idea of reading your Bible in, the, in, your, in your room on your own is a fairly modern invention. Nobody in the first century went off to read the Bible on their own. They all read it together. Because then they could bounce ideas off each other. And they'd say, well, hang on, is that what I read in, in Malachi? No, no, that's in Isaiah, but it's actually in both. Oh, that's right. They'd have all these, these robust discussions about what they'd discovered. So use the hyperlinks and get together with other people. The third thing is, of course, let the Holy Spirit guide you. Don't just read. It's not a book of facts. You know, the, the gospel authors make no bones about the fact that they are writing this to illuminate to you that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and your Lord and Saviour. And it is aimed at filling your, your heart, your mind, your spirit with that knowledge and using that knowledge to change your life. And number three, don't be dismayed. No, that was number four. Sorry. Don't let it get you down. Use, use resources. I got a lot of inspiration from this from the Bible Project because I love to read that stuff. I've distilled a lot of this. I've, I've taken ideas from things out of five hours of listening to podcasts about how to read the Bible. Now, you might not want to go into that sort of depth. In the, if that case, just watch the video. It's five minutes. But there are resources out there. Do not be afraid to actually tap into this thing. Find someone you like. Find somebody that you can rely on for good biblical truth and embark on a lifetime journey. The first step I think that we need to take is the whole thing about understanding that this is actually put together to show people that Jesus Christ lived and died for us. That the culmination of every single one of these Gospels is actually the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some Gospels... Isn't technology wonderful? I have a screen that says, looking for you. <laughs> Here I am. He's found me. It's funny how you anthropomorphize technology. 
So I said in the beginning that the Old Testament and the New Testament are all telling the same story pointing to Jesus. And so no matter which, where we're reading in the Bible, we need to actually grasp what the scriptures are saying to us about Jesus. We have to recognise him, I believe. We have a choice. We read the Bible and we say, this stuff is all rubbish and it's not for me. Or we actually have to say, look, this stuff is life-changing and its basis is that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Saviour. And he came to change this world and he came to change this world through me, which should make us all feel pretty small and humble. But his interest in us is actually to spread the good news of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you, whether you're online or whether you're here today, to take that first step to actually say, oh, okay, I'm going to be an instrument of God in this. I'm going to read this. I'm going to let it flow into me, change my life. I'm going to be more like Jesus. I'm going to understand more about how the kingdom of God impacts my life and how I can impact other people's life with the kingdom of God. Because that's what we're aiming for. We want people to look at us and, say, and not say um, accountant, um, IT person, musician, um, whatever, but just to be able to look at us and say, kingdom of God. Yeah, kingdom of God there, kingdom of God there. Because th that's what needs to come out of our lives. So if you're online and you know you need to actually make a, a positive decision to take a step to actually acknowledge, not just to yourself, but to the people around you, to take an active participation in God's kingdom. I'd love it if you just press that button that's going to appear that just says raise hand and one of our team will actually connect with you privately and take you through the steps that you will set you on a path to becoming a kingdom of God person, a person who lives with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And if you're here this morning and you want to do that, I'm going to be down at the, the step there at the bottom of the stage at the end of the service. I'd love to pray with you and help you move into that place where you are moving forward with a Lord and Saviour who wants to expand your mind. And you may bleed at the ears sometimes because your mind is going to get blown in amazing and explosive ways. But if you need to make that step, I'd love to help you after the service. So God bless you all. Do some more homework this week. Uh, next week we'll talk a bit more about some of the actual stories in the uh, Gospels and how they relate to the different styles that people use to give us messages that hopefully we understand, but possibly we may not have seen in the same light. So more excitement, perhaps a little quicker next week.